Colossians chapter 3. Now, I preached on Colossians 1, a few verses in Colossians 1, about six weeks ago. And this sermon is, you know, as you would expect, since it's out of the same book, connected to that previous one. Now, because it was a while, and quite honestly, I forgot what I said too. Um, let me just remind you a little bit about Colossians chapter 1. And if you do remember, um, it reads, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, it reads like a poem about Christ. It is a poem about Christ, a poem or a hymn. The church would have likely sung it together. And if you think about the nature of poetry, it is not of the nature to give a list of practical to-dos. So think about what poetry does. It doesn't really give us a list of to-dos, right? It's not instructive so much as arousing our affections right? And if you remember the sermon in Colossians 1, I really only gave you one point of application, which was for you to appreciate the beauty and the glory of Christ. And I hope that was encouraging to you, and I hope you appreciated who he is. And the particular beauty I think that we see here is that the poem brings out the fact that the eternal Son of God, right, the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is worthy of glory just because of who he is. He, as the Son of God, can't help but being first over all creation just by virtue of who he is. That's the glory of the eternal Son of God. But then the second part of that poem, the second stanza, is about how this eternal Son of God came down into our world, and he suffered and he died on the cross in our place, and then he rose again from the dead and is exalted to the highest glory as the eternal Son of God and the God-man. So, this hymn is put at the outset to just connect these truths about who Jesus is, that we would see him as beautiful, and that we would revel in his glory. But that's not the only thing that hymn does at the very outset of this book. It also sets the stage for what Paul knows is coming later. And see, Paul is writing this book with a major theme of being in Christ, of our union with Christ, or as the title for this message says, one with Christ. And so Paul also wants to lay out the glory of Christ, in the, particularly the incarnate glory of Christ, at the very outset, so that later when Paul says, guess what? You are in this Christ. You, you, you are united to this Christ. We'll realize then just what an amazing truth that is. You see, to read the book of Colossians is to encounter tr two truths that just are so glorious, they, they stop us in our tracks. And the first truth is that there is such a one as beautiful as this Christ is beautiful. And the second Truth is that we share in his beauty and glory. Now, to also just help you understand what Paul is doing in this book overall, uh, let, me, let me tell you what the specific challenge was that Paul was speaking into. This book is um, it's an argument. He is trying to pull them away from something that he sees they're dangerously falling off the cliff to. And, and there were some people back then who were teaching 
that there was this, and the language they used was fullness out there. There was this fullness out there that you could have. Today we might think of it as there is the, the good life out there. So, some kind of higher experience that you could have. And the people back then that were unfortunately creeping themselves into the church were saying, you can have this fullness of life, but you got to do these practices. You got to give up these things. You got to adopt this, the, these, these rituals, and then you can have the fullness of life. And Paul is countering this argument brilliantly by saying, guess what? The greatest fullness there could ever be is the fullness of Christ. It is the fullness of the deity dwelling in bodily form. The fullness, the best fullness there could be is the fullness of Christ. And guess what? If you have trusted in Christ, you have that fullness already. You have that fullness at the outset. So don't let anybody come and try to sell you a worse version of something that is actually not true anyway, but that you already have. You already have that fullness in Christ. So I think really the purpose of this book is to help us realize what it means to have the fullness of Christ, to be in a relationship with Christ where, where we stand before him and share with him his glory and then live that out. What does it look like to be in a relationship where we share the glory with this Christ? What does that look like for our lives? Well, the passage for us this morning in Colossians 3 helps our understand, fills out our understanding of that a little bit more. So let me read for you Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and then we'll say some things about it. But I'll, I'll focus primarily on the first part of this passage, but I, wanna, I want you to see it all together. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgivingness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, that's a passage that, that fills us with wonder and amazement. And it's also quite challenging. Lord, we pray that you would ground our identity sufficiently in Christ, that we may look at this text and be encouraged and appropriately challenged. Lord, we thank you for this amazing glory that we share in Christ. Teach us then how we may walk with you in that glory as we live out our lives in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's so much here. I can't explore it all. <laughs> I won't even try to, don't worry. And um, we'll spend most of our time with verses 1 through 4, but I want to include the rest because it's part of the, it's a package deal. And I want to basically look at three things that flow out of our life with Christ. And given that we share in the fullness of Christ, here are three things that we must keep in mind so that we can live appropriately. Number one is that you have a new identity. Number two, that you have a new call upon your life. And number three, that you have a new manner of life. So if you're, if you're taking notes, the outline is we have a new identity, a new call, and a new manner of life. So let's start with the new identity. And we see that there at the very outset. Verse one, look, look there with me. If you have been raised with Christ, and the assumption is that you have, since you've been raised with Christ is the idea, your identity then is one who is raised for Christ. That's who you are. Or look at verse 3. You have died. From the context we know that is you have died with Christ. Paul there is saying something that is true about you, or perhaps better, something that is not true about you. You're not alive anymore in a certain sense. You've died with him. You've died to the rule and reign of sin. That is who you are. And look there at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Now that says something very profound about your future, but it also clearly tells you about your identity, right? Christ is your life. That's who you are. Your new identity is Christ. And that means that the meaning of your existence is found in Christ. Christ's nature is shared with you. You're hidden in him. That means you're fully identified with him. He takes you as his own so you can take him as your own. As Paul says in Philippians. But notice how Paul is most concerned to talk about our identity with Christ in terms of our shared history with Christ. That's his preferred way to help you understand your identity, by helping you understand that you share a history with Christ. Now, we have to bend our minds around it to try to figure this out, but, but just think with me about this basic idea. And that is that if you were to explain to somebody kind of who you are as a person, if I met you for the first time and said, who are you? you probably would share something about your history, right? I, I was born into such and such a family, I went to this school, or I was married, or I stayed single, or I, I lost a friend to cancer, or uh, I had these children, or you would have shared your history to kind of say, this is the kind of person that I have come to be 
coming out of these events in my life. Your history isn't the only thing about you, but it is a very significant thing about who you are as a person. And that's basically what Paul is doing here with your identity in Christ, but with a, a twist to it. And that is that the events that have shaped your identity in Christ mostly happened before you were born. In a very real way, with you have died with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, you died with him. And when Christ rose from the dead, you rose from the dead with him. That, that is true of you. Your, your history with Christ defines you. That's your identity. And it's right at this point that we have to realize how important Colossians 1 is for our understanding what this means. Because we have to realize that the death and resurrection of Christ define Christ, right? They're monumental, significant events for him. How did Christ become the Son of God in his incarnate glory? Answer, by dying on the cross as the obedient Son, and then rising from the dead with the fullness of the glory of God displayed and, and realized in him. He was perfected to the highest degree of glory in human form. In the resurrection, Christ himself is transformed to become new. And, his, in, and in his resurrection, we too are transformed to become new. We have his glory. He shares it with us. Not his glory as the eternal son, but his glory as the incarnate son. The God-man, quote. But we're not finished yet in that sharing of history with Christ. We can only imagine what it will be like when Christ returns. And the glory that he already has is revealed for everyone to see. And we also will be revealed with him in that glory. That's an amazing truth. But it's important to realize that the difference between what we experience now and what we experience to come is not a difference between having that resurrection glory and not having it, you know, not having it now and then having it later. It's rather a difference between now that resurrection glory is hidden, right? Our life is hidden with Christ, even though it is every bit as real as it will ever be. And we wait for the day when it will be revealed. I'll never forget a seminary professor at one of the schools I went to named Al Groves was, was dying of cancer. And you would expect that he would talk about how he looked forward to the day when he would be raised with Christ. But he didn't. He would talk about how he already was raised with Christ. That gave him hope. And that he would look forward to the day when who he was in Christ would be fully revealed. Do you see that? Are you encouraged by that truth? Now, along with this new identity we also have a new call. And this is point number two. We have a new identity, and then we have a new call upon our lives. Look there again at verse one, and notice the connection between our identity and our call. Look there with me. If you have been raised up with Christ, that's our identity, right? Seek the things above. That's our call. Our new identity requires a new call. For those who are raised up with Christ, we must seek the things that are above. 
Paul gets at the same idea in verse 3 when he says, set your minds on the things above. And then he, he grounds that command in the truth that you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, a new identity gives rise to a new call. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is required of us that we seek the things that are above. That's not optional. It's not for just super mature Christians or super immature Christians or for those who are struggling with besetting sins or those who are walking through trials. It's not just for adults. It's for kids, too. If you're in Christ, if you've been raised with him, you must seek the things above. Okay, but what does that actually mean? I remember that I, uh, I, I wrote a sermon when I was in seminary many years ago um, for my sermon prep class. I, I wrote a sermon on this passage, and it was a terrible sermon. I'm thankful that I don't have it anymore. Um, but uh, I liked it at the time, and I remember I gave it to somebody to read who I knew liked this passage a lot, and uh, they said to me afterwards, they said, you know, I, I read your sermon because I've always wanted to know what it means to seek the things above. And then I thought that she was going to say, and thank you for telling me, but she said, and after reading your sermon, I still want to know what it means to seek the things above. And uh, maybe you'll walk out of here saying the same thing, but, you know, if I provoked you to think about this just a little bit, that's what I want to do. Now, this, this idea is hard to get a hold of. Seek the things above. What does that actually mean? How does that translate concretely in my life? Well, let me just give you a few things to kind of get the structure of it in your mind. First, what's fascinating to me, and what we must realize about this, is that the things we are commanded to do, the thing we are commanded to do in this passage, is the same as what we already are. What we are commanded to do is the same as what we already are. The identity is the call. Our identity is one who is raised up with Christ. We are with Christ, seated at the heavenly places. Our life is already hidden in him. But now we are told to seek to be where Christ is. So we're given a command to be where Christ is, and we're told that we are already there. Hmm. A little odd. Uh, Richard Gaffin uh, summarizes it this way. He says, seek after what you already have because you already have it. That's the logic of this passage. So we have to understand that whatever seeking the things above means, it must not be such that we have no possession of it in the first place. It's not that Christ is playing hard to get, and he wants to know how committed we are to seeking before he comes out and says, here I am. That's not the case at all. It's not a game of hide and seek, and we're looking for him, and we have to wonder, is he still even playing? We're already raised up with him. Our life is already hidden with him. He is ours. We are his. We have the fullness of Christ. And yet, until the day when Christ returns and we're revealed with him in glory, our experience will always be far short of the reality. I mean, for people who are raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, we sure have a lot of anxieties, don't we? We sure have a lot of sin in our hearts. In one sense, we aren't yet what we will be, even though in another sense we already are. The command to seek Christ is a command to become, in practice, who we already are in position. 
Seeking Christ is seeking to increase the foretaste of that future glory which is already ours in Christ and which we know will be revealed. And yet it still matters that we seek Him. We still have to seek Him. The other thing I want to say about what it means to seek the things above is that it is of the mind and the heart and the habits. It involves our total life. I think seeking the things above and setting your minds on the things above are essentially getting at the same reality, but from a little bit different perspectives. They don't quite mean the same thing. Setting our minds on the things above is recognizing what is real and true in Christ and deciding to dwell on that reality. And seeking the things above is really conforming our lives to that goal of Christ. But I, I think you kind of know what this means if you think about it, right? Because if you think about it, the way we work as humans, more or less, is that we identify something as life, life-giving, and then we do all we can to seek it. That's kind of what we do, right? If we say that life, for you, is financial security and the ability to do what you want, if you've defined life in that way, then you seek it. You invest your money. You, you make that work. If the good life for you is a happy marriage, then you seek it. And the irony is that if you make that your one goal, quite often you end up destroying that because it's the one thing only that you seek. But that's where you're concerned. If life for you is respect from others at your job, then you seek that. Then you work very hard and you care what others think about you and you stretch the truth a little bit about what time you actually came in and what time you actually leave. We are creatures who hold out for ourselves some version, a vision of what life is, and then we do all we can to seek that. But please hear me. If you have believed in Jesus, if you trusted him as your only hope of escaping from God's wrath, then he is your life. It says that right there in verse 4. Christ is your life. So seek him. And if Christ is your life, that means that success in your job is not. If Christ is your life, then finding that relationship you've always wanted is not. So don't seek it as your primary goal. If Christ is your life, then a happy sex life is not. So stop idolizing. If Christ is your life, then perfectly parented children are not. So don't wrap your identity around them. If Christ is your life, then seek him. And then all other things will be added in the appropriate time and the appropriate way. And this leads us to our third and final point, which is that we have a new manner of life. And we see this in verses 5 through 17. And I think this is really the idea, that the manner of life that, that Paul describes here is basically the same idea as seeking Christ, but expressed in different words, in the words of putting on and putting off. It's like clothing. We, we, when you got up in the morning, you, you put off your pajamas and you put on your clothes for the day, right? You, you put off and you put on. And that's the language that Paul uses here. Verses, verses 5 through 17 consists of many things that we are to put off and put on. Now, I won't go into much detail here. I'll leave that for you to sort of study and work out on your own. But I do want you to see in this passage how the concept of putting off and putting on connects to identity. Because that's 
that's critical that we understand this. That is, that the putting off and putting on is not, listen to this, it's not in order that we may have a new identity, but it's because we already have it. And it's imperative that we get the order right. So, so let me try to illustrate this before we get into just a little bit of what this, what this passage says. Um, try to imagine something with me, okay? You can have some fun with this. Imagine that you've just been exercising or have done something to get yourself really, really dirty. I was an avid mountain bike uh, racer for a number of years, and there was times where I would ride on the trail, and, and I would be so covered with mud, I would just wear glasses so that my, I could still see, but other than two little spots on my eyes, everything else would just be completely uh, muddy. Uh, imagine something you know for yourself like that, or maybe you've been out in the garden all day, or, or you know you're you're pretty dirty. What do you do? Well, you go in and you take a shower, right? I mean, that's what you do, and you you scrub all the dirt and the grime off of your body, and you become clean, right? Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine as you're in the shower and you're almost done getting clean your mind starts to drift to, I don't know, a recent conversation you had with a friend or, or maybe a movie you stayed up watching, and, and you're distracted. You're absent-minded. Some members of my family struggle with that more than others. Now, now imagine in this sort of absent-minded, distracted state, you get out of the shower, all clean, but instead of putting on the clothes that you had set out to put on, you start to put the dirty ones back on. The ones that are filled with dirt and grime. Well, what do you do? Well, hopefully, before you get very far, you wake up to what you're doing and you just throw them off, right? You're kind of revolted by the fact that you would put that thing back on your body and you just, you just throw them off. Here's what I want you to see. You throw those dirty clothes off, not so that you will be clean, but because you already are. Those dirty clothes used to fit you just fine, right? When you're dirty, you don't really care that you're wearing dirty clothes. Like, when was the last time you're, you're jogging down the road thinking, man, my clothes are so dirty? <laughs> you don't care because you fit them perfectly fine. But when you're clean, you don't want to put those dirty clothes back on. They're not fitting for who you are. And that's the same logic of this passage. The putting off and putting on is not so that you become a new kind of person. The putting off and putting on doesn't change your identity. Rather, it befits who you already are. Now, let me just take two encouragements from this. Number one, don't try to change your nature by changing your behavior. Don't do it, because it's not going to work. That's what the, the false teachers were doing when they were trying to tell people that they could have this fullness if they did these things. They were saying there are practices you must master, and then you can get this glory. Now, that's not true. Yes, there are practices that we must master. We must work hard at cultivating certain things in the Christian life, but not so that we have the resurrection glory, but because we already do. And if you mix up the order, you'll be hopelessly lost. It's absurd to think that you could change your nature by adopting certain practices, just as it would be absurd to think that after you're, you're filthy dirty, you could become clean simply by changing your clothes. It, it's not going to work. Paul actually talks about that approach to godliness, or a pseudo-godliness, in chapter 2. 
and he talks about what has the appearance of wisdom for self-made religion. But in the end, that power, that, that approach has no power to curb the desires of the flesh. Adopting new practices to change your nature doesn't work. It can appear to be good. It has this plausibility to it. And that's the structure of the, the self-made religion. But in the end, it doesn't work. And that's why godly, well, religious people have things like a very high rate of pornography use. Because we have this appearance of religion, but in the end it has no power to change a heart. So don't try to change your nature by changing your behavior. Do, number two, change your behavior in light of who you are in Christ. So do throw off that dirty shirt because you wake up to the fact that you are clean. As Christians, we need to wake up to the fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And therefore, it is utterly inconsistent for us to act like we did before. We share in the resurrection glory of Christ. Let's get out those things that don't fit who we are. You know, I think our, our stat, state as Christians is sort of like that distracted person getting out of the shower. That's kind of who you are. And it's incumbent upon us to wake up to who we are so that we take off what doesn't belong and we put on what does. We need a sanctified, godly gag reflex that says, no, this doesn't belong, and we throw it off. When a lustful thought enters your mind, you need to say, oh, that's disgusting, given who I am, and we need to take it out. When a sense of bitter jealousy rises up in you, you need to throw it off. And the way to cultivate that sanctified gag reflex is to set your mind on the things above. Live up there where you belong, where Christ is. And then you'll be more sensitive to when you have something that doesn't fit who you are. The other thing that I think we have to realize in this passage is that there is a little bit of a layering approach to what's going on here. You're familiar with you know, dressing in layers when you go out in the cold, right? This is winter in Maryland, and we know about layers, right? Because it can be freezing cold in the morning and then warmer uh, at night, or warmer in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, if you're dressing in layers, you have your base layer, and you have your middle layer, and you have your outer shell. This passage is kind of, sort of, structured along those lines. The base layer here is the inner motivation and your private thoughts and desires. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, your inner thoughts and desires must change to fit the kind of person you are in Christ. If you have secret desires for things that you know are wrong, you must put them off. You can't be like, I know I prayed this terrible thing, but I'll never do it, so I don't have to worry about it. No. First of all, how do you know you'll never do it? And second of all, God cares that the inner thoughts and desires of your mind and heart match who you are in Christ, so make them match. That's easier said than done, of course. It involves lots of prayer and help from the body of Christ and lots of setting your minds on the things above. But that is what this passage tells you to do. So we have the base layer of our inner motivations and desires and thought life. 
The second layer, Sinclair Ferguson calls the layer of everyday living. That's our, our middle layer. Paul says to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This speaks to the kind of person that we are like if you're around us every day. What kind of person would your children say that you are? What kind of person would your spouse say that you are? What kind of person would the people who drive next to you on your commute to work every day say that you are? What kind of person would your siblings say that you are? Well, we must put off everything that is associated with our earthly life and put on that which reflects who we are above. And finally, there is everything related to our church life. That's the outer shell in verses 10 through 17. It starts off saying, do not lie to one another. And the rationale, notice there in verse 10, the rationale for why we ought not to lie to one another is that we are all one in Christ. It turns out that the identity that we have in Christ is ultimately not individual. It includes the individual identity, but it's ultimately not individual. It's corporate and communal. We, as a people of God, are raised up with Christ. It's true that I am raised up with Christ, so my private thoughts and desires need to conform to that reality, but it is even more true that we, as a people, are raised up with Christ. And therefore, how I think of others in the body of Christ is the most direct application to who I am in Christ. I am raised up with these other brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all one together, so I must look upon them in a different way. I must treat them in a different way. And that first way is that I must not lie to one another. Sigler Ferguson, in one of his books, fleshes this out a bit. He says, when commenting on this passage, in other words, don't play let's pretend in church. Let's have honest and real relationships with each other. We are new men and women in Christ, after all. Those who know who they are in Christ no longer need to pretend and hide themselves behind a mask. You see, the logic here is that because we are one in Christ, we must put off everything that is not Christ. It's like how Michelangelo explained how he would create a statue. He would say that the trick is that when he looks at a block of stone, he sees an angel, and he just knocks out all the parts that are not angels, and he's left with the angel. God looks at us and sees that we are one in Christ. And then our job, our call, is to knock out those parts that are not Christ. And that begins with the part of playing pretend. But not only does Paul tell us what not to do, what, what to put off, he also tells us, related to the church, what we ought to put on. And this is in, starting in verse 12. Beloved, Sorry. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Now, there's so much here, and we're going to conclude in a minute, and I'll let you just sort of explore this on your own. But let me just give you a couple big picture things in this passage. Notice how this putting off and putting on is addressed to the church as the church. Look there in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It addresses us corporately, and it addresses us corporately in our new identity in Christ. We are the ones who are holy and beloved. Because you are holy and beloved, so you are holy and beloved because you're in Christ. This is not, our holiness is indeed something we aspire to, but it's also something we already have. Yes, we must take seriously these commands to put off these things and put on these things. We must also recognize that God already sees us as holy because we're in Christ and we have his holiness. But notice that not only does this tell us who we are, it also tells us the manner in which we are to put off these things. Notice that little word as. As those who are chosen by God, holy and beloved. If we want to get technical about it, we could say that as those chosen by God, holy and beloved, functions adverbally, right? Now, I'm sorry to sound like an English class, but bear with me here for a second. What does an adverb do? It describes how the main verb is done, right? He ran quickly. She ate slowly. We ought to put on these characteristics holy and belovedly in the sense that we must recognize the work that God has done in uniting us to the death and resurrection of Christ to make us into a new kind of people. Then in light of that, we put off and we keep upon. That means that we don't put on these things with a sense of desperation, seeking to become something we're not. We also don't put on these things with any sense of pride. Look what we can do if we only put our minds to it and plan the right kind of social events. Notice, too, that so many of these things that are, we're told to put on are really just ways of relating to people that remind them of their identity in Christ. So we ought to sing spiritual songs to one another. Maybe recognize the purpose of singing is not just that you like the songs, but that you encourage one another with those words that you are saying. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And also notice that even the way we forgive one another should remind us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. The purpose of you forgiving each other is so that you point to the ultimate forgiveness that we have already received in Christ. And notice, too, that this isn't just something that God has called the elders to practice. It's for the whole church, as the church. This is how God calls everybody in the church to live with each other. Let me just conclude with a, a couple of encouragements for us as a church. And one of the things that, that we have found so encouraging about imprint is the community and the fellowship. And as our family has relatively recently come into this church, we have felt loved and welcomed. And we also are so encouraged how you want to be helping us prepare to go to Zambia for a year. We're very encouraged by that. Now, here's my encouragement to you. And that is, as the community grows and deepens, make sure that it stays a community in Christ. 
After all, what binds us together is not that we have so much in common. It's not that we like being together so much. What binds us together is our corporate identity in Christ. Together we share in Christ's death to sin and resurrection glory. Now, fellowship in Christ, if it's truly in Christ, will always result in spiritual growth. It will always result in seeking Christ. Those who are in Christ together seek Christ together. And that means that it will always result in a kind of putting off and putting on. So friends, don't be surprised when our fellowship together requires some putting off. And don't be surprised when we realize that we're not actually a perfect church. And let's not act as if something terrible, horrible has gone wrong. When we realize that we need to put off some patterns of relating that don't befit who Christ is. And sometimes putting off hurts. Like crucifixion hurts, actually. Because the synonym here for putting off is also put to death. It reminds us of what Jesus says when he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. God has designed the community in Christ in such a way that it requires death. It requires death to our own desires. It requires death to our comfort. Don't be surprised when that happens. Don't think something has gone horribly wrong. And don't be surprised when God calls you to put on some things that feel a little bit awkward at first. We're raised with Christ and therefore called to, to live in a manner that befits our new identity in Christ, but we don't always get that right at first. Don't be surprised when this is hard and we fail more than we succeed. Notice that Paul assumes that you will have to ask forgiveness from others. But get the order right. Never should we think that we have the responsibility or ability to change who we are. That's God's work. And he's already done that work for us in Christ. God has made us, both individually and as a church, holy and beloved. Now, we take off everything that is not Christ and put on everything that is. Let's pray.